friend Dan Thoreau, and I am joined by a very special guest, someone I am excited uh, to speak with today. I am welcoming Aaron Lee Escobedo. Hello. How are you today? I'm doing about as well as can be expected in the current circumstances. (laughs) How are you surviving? Well, we're trying. We're trying. It's uh, it's a bit scary out there because my wife is immunocompromised and everything is scary and the world is ending. Hooray. <laughs> that sounds about like everyone else feels right. Yeah. Yep. My Fantastic wife is in crap. healthcare. Um, and so we're a little on edge as well. Yeah. Hooray. Happy, happy topics. Why don't we talk about something a little, I don't know, lighter, like um, the death of all living things. That sounds a little cheerier to me. How about to you? Let's do that. Yeah. Let's talk about uh, starvation. Mass starvation. Well, I'm not t- in favor of it. Okay, I'm glad you clarified that for us. <laughs> Why? What are you in favor of? Relocation to Antarctica? Well, no. See, that's sort of a worst case scenario sort of thing. You know, it's. I feel like if we were to move to Antarctica, there would be some sort of you know starvation, possibly of a tactical nature. You know, possibly induced by the you know grinning uh, skull-like specter of nationalism that threatens to destroy everything we hold dear, et cetera, so on and so forth. You know the drill. You live in this world. Now, if a depraved soul were to make a game about such a thing, what would they call that game? Well, first of all, you flatter me. And second of all, that game would be, uh, that game would probably be uh, something along the lines of, I don't know, meltwater? Not, I, I don't like it. Let's, let's, let's workshop that. So Meltwater, um, is is Meltwater your only published game? So far, it's my only published game. Why don't you introduce Meltwater to us just in the broadest possible terms? Uh, don't exhaust our discussion topics, but just in case our listeners have no idea what Meltwater is about, why don't you give us the uh, elevator pitch? Well, Meltwater is a two-player game published through Hollenspiele, uh local small war game company that uh, primarily concerns um, controlling a Cold War superpower after a theoretical nuclear apocalypse and the xenophobic madness of the Cold War uh, taken to its grim logical conclusion. You are playing a short, very simple chess-like game where you shove each other into corners and uh, make each other starve and uh, irradiate to death. You know, cheery stuff. Uh, hopefully it's not prophetic. Well, you know, yeah, hopefully, hopefully not. Might be uh, different players this time, but yeah. Granted, I don't know if, you know, one of the things is that I don't know if anyone would actually be able to survive on Antarctica. It's not like I did like some sort of demographic research. It's more of a parable sort of game. Oh, I, sure. I don't think we'd actually people would actually be able to survive in Antarctica. But if they did, this is how the barbaric ghost of nationalism that got us into these sort of problems would play out that makes sense to me so i i love the way you're describing it as a parable just so people know uh meltwater was 
uh, absolutely one of my favorite titles from, was it two years ago? Uh, 2018. Yeah. So October, 2018, I believe. So I, I, I think quite highly of Meltwater and it is not a game that I would recommend any grandma pick up for their grandson's birthday. Are you kidding? It sounds like a load of fun, you know, perfect for family gatherings. Yeah. It depends on the kid. Maybe if your kid is reading some Malthus. Well, no, hopefully you're not making your kid read Malthus. Um, I, uh, I have a few opinions on that guy. They're, uh, they're not pleasant. Wouldn't invite him over for an ice cream social. So why don't you tell us a little bit about just where Meltwater came from? How did you put together a game? Um, it's my understanding that it was all, it was rather serendipitous the way that it came together for you. So Meltwater came about in uh, 2016. I'd recently both gotten married and the company I was work for, working for, uh, Pulp Gamer Media, had been forced to shutter due to the loss of one of our major clients. So I was at home. I didn't have a lot to do. And I was uh, beating my brains mercilessly against a game prototype I was working on, not Meltwater, uh, some other project that was needlessly complicated and, you know, had grand, terrifying, horrible ambitions, you know, the way junior designers are want to be stupid. And eventually I got tired of, you know, attempting to squeeze blood from a stone. So I just swept everything off my desk in a big dramatic gesture and said, you know what, I'm going to make the simplest possible game that I can think of, which because at the time I had been, you know, depression watching a bunch of videos on various expressions of John Conway's game of life, not the, not the one with the spinner, the one that's a mathematical model model of uh, reproduction and Mm -hmm. population decline. So I, got out some paper, drew a little grid on it, and tried to figure out uh, some mechanics for moving and starvation. What would it look like if Conway's Game of Life was a two-player game instead of a zero-player game? And uh, eventually that metamorph, you know, a couple pokes later, I decided to, you know, make a more interesting map. So Google image searched some Antarctica photos, was like, yeah, that looks about right. Uh, and then everything just from there started flowing like water downhill and, you know, basically the game designed itself and I'm a hack. Well, you didn't steal it. Well, I didn't steal it though. It is a very, you know, in addition to John Conway's game of life, it does owe a great notional debt to, um, Brenda Romero, a, uh, an artist slash game designer who created an game as art piece called and i'm going to butcher this please forgive me any native uh, irish gaelic speakers Sh- uh uh irish for peace be with you it was a game as art piece expression of the monstrosity of the cromwellian invasion of ireland a lot of my ideas for the encroachment mechanics of meltwater uh for something I didn't say in my brief summary, uh, as you are fighting each other to death in Antarctica and meltwater, radioactive fallout is constantly pressing in from the coastlines, creating an increasingly shrinking, increasingly desperate arena, a bit like knife fighting in a phone booth. Uh, and that idea came from the, uh, the progression of the English in Romero's art piece. Now, uh, Romero's game, Shehan Lat, is not available for publication. It was only ever shown in museums. Uh, in fact, there is only one copy in existence made out of um, heirlooms that Romero had from her grandparents and great-grandparents that were of direct Irish descent. 
and right you know, things like like spoons and yeah, photographs and, and things like that and everything in there there was a rosary hidden in the game board that was her grandmothers or great-grandmothers i can't remember um, right i recall that and well, so it's a very personal thing and i've never played it i've never been at a i've never been at a museum showing but i did see images of this game no rules just images she refuses to write down the rules the only copy of the rules are written in her blood isn't in that her correct? actual irish blood yes and right. it's only allowed to ever be set up by people of irish descent is a rule in those rules so yeah she doesn't make the game publicly available so i don't know how close my ripoff homage ripoff let's go with ripoff of her ideas <laughs> uh actually skews to the original ideas but i did look at that dramatic art piece as board game and thought man what if i could monetize this no i kid i kid i kid what would this look like <laughs> as game qua game Right. And at the time, I was playing a lot of this uh, little-known indie game. I don't know if any of your uh, viewership would know it, called Twilight Struggle. D- d- you know, a bit obscure. Uh, yeah, I, isn't that... I mean, that's never broken the top thousand on Board Game Geek. Yeah, I don't think it was ever top one game on Board Game Geek for like, you know, five, six years. Right. So uh, I was playing a lot of online Twilight Struggle. And uh, so I had a lot of Cold War on the mind. I might have also been playing a little known game by a company called Bethesda Softworks called Fallout. So I had a lot of this, you know, post nuclear hell in my brain. And so I shifted from the Irish famines and the impressment into servitude following the Cromwell's invasion of Ireland and sort of my brain shifted that into uh, the good old Cold War. And there was a quote uh, in the Twilight Struggle rulebook, a historical quote that always stuck out to me like a beacon or like or like someone pointing a gun at my head uh, from uh, Thomas Sarsfield Powers, who was the head of Strategic Air Command during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And he is uh, infamously quoted as saying, Restraint? Why are you so concerned with saving their lives? The whole point is to kill the bastards. If there are two Americans and one Russian left alive at the end of the war, we win. And that right. <laughs> that quote has chilling. been in my brain like a thorn. That what kind of xenocidal death cult madness would inspire you to think like that about warfare? That, that the blood of not even people arbitrarily designated your enemy but even your own people is less important than an abstract notion of victory and nationalism and that stuck with me so i sort of you know jammed that into meltwater sideways and uh i feel it's rather it rather suits the uh grim notions that that game likes to entertain you've mentioned in the past that romero and power are uh sort of the odd couple grandparents of meltwater Definitely from a thematic standpoint, took the same ideas from radically different perspectives. Right. So Brenda Romero, of course, is probably best known um, for her game Train. That received a ton of press. A ton of press Um, and a little bit of infamy. Yeah, some infamy. Um, In in a way, they're both talking about a form of nationalism, uh, whereas one is appreciative and certainly is on the receiving end of an empire's invasion, whereas the other is simply concerned with nothing but propagating that, as you've said, abstract notion of victory. Yeah, so 
bit of a fun thing to have bouncing around in my brain as I was making my little, you know, checkers variant. And so meltwater ensued. So I've read your wonderful essays that you published on Tom's website, on Holland Spiele's site. I'm so glad someone likes those. Oh, I think they're, I think they're quite excellent. <laughs> Um, I wish more design diaries would, first of all, express what you expressed in those, but also uh, have put that much thought into their design in the first place. So it seems to me that you don't like Thomas Malthus uh, inspiring starvation and eugenics. So as a bracket for those who might not be familiar, Thomas Malthus was an English cleric uh, who in 1798 was massively wrong and caused a lot of misery as a result. Specifically, he released an essay called, uh, creatively titled, An Essay on the Principles of Population, which argued in short form that letting the poor starve was a great thing. We should do more of that. And has led to a lot of thought in a fascinating little school of philosophy called eugenics. I don't know if you've heard of it. Not a fan. (laughs) Uh, It's a bit new. It's a bit... uh, Yeah, a bit of a problem. So Malthus proposed that any population would, at some point, if allowed to grow unchecked, would exceed its food supply. He was primarily basing his observations on comparing the urban poor of Victorian England cities to rabbit populations and was like, oh, they'll breed out of control beyond their food supply and then they'll suffer and die. And that's just the natural way of things. And that's just how things should be. So we should let the poor starve because if we give them food, they'll just breed more and then suffer worse. Right. And there's a lot of paternalism in the way he argues it too. Specifically, Um, he came at it from a very moralistic point. Like I said, he was an Anglican cleric and his great remedy was, oh, this is proof that, you know, the poors are, you know, need to be, need to have moral restraint forced upon them so that they, you know, don't engage in such licentious behavior that leads to their own destruction. You know, right. When you mentioned that he compared them to rabbits, um, it's telling because like rabbits, uh, he believed both the Irish and the poor lacked the capacity to self-restraint. And then that logic of Malthus's was later used to a uh, horrifying effect in 1845 through 1849, the uh, Great Famine in Ireland, uh, probably better known to American listeners as the Irish Potato Famine, uh, when uh, his writings formed the basis of British public policy towards the Irish Famine, Mainly that they would not stop requesting the export of Irish crops and uh, would not provide aid because, you know, the Irish needed to die off a little, thereby creating one of the greatest mass die-offs and uh, mass diasporas of the pre-20th century world. I think it was something like between 300 and 500,000. Yeah, it was, was, uh, to put it academically, a bad scene. In academics, that's that's the phrase we often employ. Yeah, but only yeah. in journal articles. Only in journal articles. So have uh, you have you had the displeasure of reading an essay on the principle of population? Oh God, no! I couldn't get through it. It was Victorians. They they their incomprehensible. They're incomprehensible. I I had a class where we uh, actually did read it, and um, we read. So there's at least eight editions, I believe. This essay, uh, despite informing policy in a number of cases, was actually met with horror upon its publication. And he he makes some interesting arguments because, of course, some of the first arguments against it were people saying, "Well, this is eugenics. This is this is a classist document. You hate the poor." So in his later in his later revisions, he actually did address all of those things to explain to us why he isn't 
sure those things. But usually his answers aren't very convincing. For instance, um, so eugenics, if we're thinking about it just in terms of breeding, he dismissed eugenics through breeding as impractical because people wouldn't want to be celibate. It wasn't because it was horrifying. It was because, again, people lacked self-control. Fantastic. And, Great. and a lot of his answers actually, that's, that's kind of where they came down where he goes, it's not that I hate the poor. It's that the poor can't help themselves. Uh, I actually love the poor. It's just too bad that they're going to do this to themselves. Wow. What a great and wonderful guy. I'm certain he was a riot at parties. <laughs> well, I guess it depends on your party. A but, rally. Yeah. Unfortunately, Malthus is a figure I kind of had to get out in front of because his thinking does not influence my game at all directly. But I was making a game about starvation and Malthus is sort of the, you know, creepy uncle lurking behind any discussion of starvation, waiting to inject himself. So I just wanted to, when I published that article, when I published Meltwater, I wanted to get out in front and say, no, by the way, before any of you lovely internet edgelords decides to use my game as a justification of Malthusian principles, here's an essay talking about why they're shit. And, you know, before someone decides to uh, compare them to a certain purple idiot who decided he should kill half the universe with a magic glove, that was such a hot button in pop culture around the time. Right. I wanted to ask about that. Um, so it sounds as though, so Malthusianism did not actually directly inspire the design. So, so I, I, in your essays, you actually invoked Thanos, didn't you? Uh, yes, I specifically mentioned Thanos and the people who, at the time, uh, Infinity War had just recently come out uh, around the time I was publishing the game. And mm-hmm. there were definitely people on, you know, our great and glorious overlord, the internet, uh, you know, talking about, Oh, how, you know, how sympathetic and justified he was. And it was tooth grindingly irritating. And I just wanted to make sure that people weren't waving my game around like a flag because at a certain level designers, and this is true of anyone who makes any media ever for any reason ever need to take into consideration what their work says And this is true for any work. There is no such thing as apolitical work because we are not apolitical entities. Everything says, if only by omission, something, and it is the designer's, it is the creator of any media's job to, at the very least, grapple with and try to have a sense of their responsibility to their audience. For me, my responsibility was making sure that this terrifying notion was not in any way linked to my work, especially because uh, these sort of arguments are being used right now in the modern day, presently, as we are speaking, very near to where I live. Uh, I live in uh, the southern, southwestern United States, and right now there is a crisis in which um, individuals of a specific uh, background are being compared to vermin and are being placed into uh, camps where they are perhaps concentrated together. Specifically, um, yeah, these sort of arguments about the uncontrollability of the unwashed masses persist and they disgust me. Yeah, as they should. So I'm interested in the ways that your game actually does seem to address this both thematically and mechanically. So, so I guess we should say that 
why so why is Malthus wrong in the real world? So Malthus is wrong in the real world for um two primary reasons. One is that his initial conjecture was very simplistic. He argued that population grows uh, exponentially with breeding. Uh, food supply can only grow arithmetically with uh, land. He did not account for any sort of, say, developments or... At the time, you know, the Industrial Revolution was just spinning up and massive, massive, massive improvements in the way food was grown. Uh was coming about so his projections of you know available arable land were completely off the mark to illustrate this for our listeners if maybe you haven't heard of a malthusian catastrophe is to picture a graph um, with two lines both of them ascending but one of them is ascending much more steeply than the other Um, the steeply ascending line is population growth as he perceived in urban england and of course there were factors that led into that steep increase beyond just birth Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, the rural poor being forced into urban environments due to enclosure and due to the knock on effects of the industrial revolution, uh, driving a lot of farmers off the land. So a lot of those people showing up in his cities were not, you know, brand, you know, brand new minted pores from those poor people who couldn't control themselves. They were economic migrants. Right. And then we have this other line that, uh, according to him, never really takes off. It just slowly grows. That's the more shallow line. That's food. And where population intersects with food, that exact moment is the Malthusian catastrophe, where you now have more population than food, and so chaos and et cetera ensue. Is that a, do you feel that's an accurate depiction? of what he's arguing. That's an accurate depiction of what he's arguing and a very inaccurate depiction of the reality of resource production, especially things like food production as they exist in the world. Those sort of catastrophes have only ever existed locally. The global food supply has never, ever, ever been in threat since the industrial revolution as you know, my fellow pinko socialist wonks like to say there is no problem of supply there is a problem of distribution and the interests that control that distribution sure i mean even in the time both Engels and marx were pretty horrified at uh, malthus mm-hmm. do you uh, do you feel like so you mentioned technology so obviously this was before the the rise of industrial farming even tractors um high yield plants pesticides those sorts of things um do you feel like there could ever be is there is there any point at which Malthus could be correct? Could he be wrong about the timing? Um, could he be correct about peak phosphorus or something like that? What's your what's your opinion there? So, I will go ahead and preface this by saying I have a lot of opinions here. I am not an agronomist. I am not a demographer. I have a bachelor's degree in theater production, so my opinions should always be taken with a heavy dose of salt but unlike unlike our nation's executive let's have no one take any actual serious advice from a podcast yeah yeah so don't believe malthus's projections were right because the secondary reason is that people are not that i don't believe in his paternalistic beliefs in how humans operate especially there is a 
there a big part of Malthus's work is the assertion that charity is cruelty because mm-hmm. you know his conjecture was that you know rabbits and the dumb beasts of the wild or however he put it i don't remember do not engage in altruistic action so the effects of the malthusian catastrophe are immediate they're direct they immediately die down whereas you know humans have this terrible thing where we help each other and that just prolongs the catastrophe because any of that money just goes immediately into making more poor irish people so <laughs> that's that is not how it works that paternalistic thinking is inane and inaccurate is beyond my ability to really grapple with in a philosophical manner uh mm-hmm. try try the villi- try the videos of oliver thorne if you want a uh, deeper uh grappling with any sort of topic like that i just know it fills me with a white hot rage that uh occasionally spills out onto innocent podcasters you know i i thought it was interesting i took my daughter uh my six-year-old daughter on a on about a two-mile walk earlier this evening and because we're going through this uh, virus outbreak there, the streets were largely abandoned. There were, there were plenty of people walking their dogs or walking with their partners or bicycling, that sort of thing. But the parks were empty. Um, there, there was very little traffic. Um, and it almost does have that sort of apocalyptic air to it. But I also found it incredibly encouraging that this exhibits that so many people are staying in and staying home and being cautious about who they have contact with and who they do commerce with out of care for their fellow people. Yeah. Statistically. Well, I don't know if I want to say statistically because I don't have the statistics to pull out here on this informal podcast about board games, but generally speaking, the idea that people respond to crisis with barbarism is largely unfounded uh and you know a lot of this whole thinking of mouth you know the people who uphold the malthusian catastrophe are the same sort of people who really need to stop taking mike judge's film idiocracy as gospel there are people who act irresponsibly in the face of a crisis but as a larger body people tend to do more pro-social behaviors than popular media would perhaps like us to believe. I, I think it's a great point you're making just that, you know, there, there will always be people who are irresponsible. Um, but by and large, I think that I see a lot of evidence that regular people are trying to do the right thing uh, to the best of their knowledge, even if they're hoarding toilet paper. Mm-hmm. Although, you know, resource hoarding is its own thing that largely uh, derives from the ability to have resources in the initial phase, which is sort of the problem that, you know, causes these sort of shortages. It's not, from my perspective, it is not the people without power uh, who cause shortages by overconsumption it is the people with power who see opportunities to gain by exercise of power. A lot of fancy ways of saying eat the rich. Yeah. I, are you using an example like that? Uh, who was that guy who bought up? The, like- uh, the, ge- the you know, lovely gentleman whose name I can't remember, but oh, I hope you go Google right now. So you go break into his <laughs> house uh, who hoarded 
thousands upon thousands of bottles of hand sanitizer with the intent of price gouging them on Amazon. And then, you know, in a rare act of non-slavering capitalism, Amazon actually, you know, said, no, we're not doing that. I I don't know how Jeff Bezos managed to get his twitching fingers away from that particular <laughs> gullet for five minutes, but they in fact decided that that was a bad PR move. And so, but it's that, but, you know, let's not give too much credit because certainly, you know, this gentleman hoarding hand sanitizer has nothing on the crisis compared to a man, you know, sitting on a giant uh, Scrooge McDuck style vault of wealth stashed in uh, various foreign accounts that could, you know, say, give the most meager fraction of that towards actual social development. I'm just going to start frothing and shouting socialist catchphrases <laughs> it's shortly, and you should probably stop me before I go into a rousing rendition of the Internationale. So let's talk about uh, let's talk about hoarding. So one of the ways that you wrote this into Meltwater is you actually expressed a mathematical difference between how many people, how many of the uh, survivor chits your game board could support versus how many actually exist. So I do want to get out in front of this real quick and say that there is a mathematical model in my game and it is entirely pulled directly from my butt. Uh, <laughs> there is, I, I didn't go through and studiously calculate the support yield of Antarctica. If anything, I probably grotesquely overestimated it again, not a demographer, not an agronomist, but I did want my game board to not reflect Malthusian principles. So on in meltwater, there are only a limited number of chits that can ever be on Antarctica. And there's a limited number of chits that can survive in each hex now if you take my game's proposition that you know were peace declared uh resources could be diverted to stopping the encroachment of the fallout which is more or less inaccurate because nuclear holocaust is pretty terrible it turns out um but if you take that but if you take that as principle, then there are, in fact, enough spaces for every single piece that can possibly enter the game board to survive without a single drop of blood being shed. Almost by double. Almost by double. It's the only thing that is forcing you to engage in bloody conflict is the fact that you are directed to. That's it. My game says... In the logic of the Cold War, kill them. They cannot exist. With that in mind, so what is the role of, of food in the game? So you have supplies, which increase uh, how many units can stack safely on a hex. Um, and I feel like it's, it's hardwired into us to think of resources as too finite to go around. And in many ways, I, I would argue that that's a social construct rather than necessarily a real one. But you look at a lot of board games, even some very popular ones, some family ones, uh, games like Evolution and the more recent Oceans, where a food supply is tied directly to um, survival of the fittest, um, to quote Herbert Spencer, who was directly influenced by Malthus, for instance. So in what way do you does your food source tie into that? Even with your food, is there enough to go around for all of the chits? In the in the game, yes. There is 
there is enough to go around. Every single hex can, every single person can fit. Every single person can be fed, especially if you're not, say, you know, sneaking behind supply lines to destroy each other's uh, stockpiles of food and medicine and resources. Yes, the game board is designed to be, and that's a major feature of the game. There are these stockpile chits that increase the uh, viability of nearby hexes, allowing them to hold an extra unit from turn to turn without starving. And a major portion of the strategy in the game is the capture or wasting of these resources. There is there is no direct mechanic to destroy the stockpiles, mostly because no one ever used it in the playtest, but you can indirectly destroy the stockpiles by causing the encroachment of radioactive material into the stockpile, thereby spoiling it. Yeah. So a major part of dealing, a major part of the game is addressing this humanitarian crisis of starvation by destroying food. And that brings us right into what I wanted to ask you about. So first of all, just in game terms, I, I love what you did there. Um, I remember I was playing with one friend and I was trying to do exactly what you said, where I was trying to loop around him a little bit. I was playing as the Soviets who begin a little bit more coastal. Um, but maybe feel a little more pressed for territory, especially as uh, the fallout keeps being windswept into their territory. Um, so I, I moved inland to try to take one of the stockpiles that he had put out a little f- closer to me uh, to act as a stopgap for his troops. And I remember very distinctly that when he stopped me, from being able to retrieve that food that instead I dropped a, I cracked the ice and allowed the radioactive material to break through. And it was a, it was a carnivorous rush um, not to even claim the food, but to deny it to the person I hated. <laughs> I'm glad you enjoyed it. That's the essence of the game's logic. The logic of the game is inherently pointlessly inhumane because national war is kind of pointlessly inhumane what you know the destruction of those stockpiles is supposed to kind of evoke the sort of senseless destruction that occurred in say uh vietnam uh a particular uh, flashpoint of the cold war and the and you know the development of agent orange the just massive deforestation and destruction of arable land and people uh, agent orange was a horrifying thing to come into contact with as and it's a defoliant it destroyed crops it was primarily used to destroy uh foliage to permit uh cleaner sight lines for aerial bombing uh but the massive waste of it all was part of the logic of engagement during well during that time and during a lot of warfare like this is not unique to the cold war denial of resources is part of the game even some of the ways that we have been using it uh contemporarily i think it it's very uh i i like the way that meltwater forces us to confront some of that for instance the way that one of the western strategies of the first world is to wield agriculture as a weapon that we donate a ton of food but we impede agricultural development um, that there has not been a famine in a very long time that could not have been treated. For instance, the famine in Yemen that's going on today uh, only because of a blockade by Saudi Arabia 
that has had at least 85,000 casualties. Um, a famous example that a lot of people have talked about with so many movies about Winston Churchill, of course, would be the Bengal famine in which the English in 1943 were happy to ship Australian flour to the Middle East and Southern Africa, practically everywhere in the Indian Ocean, except for India. And of course, two to three million people died as a result of that. Exactly. Um, that is exactly what I was grappling with when I was developing Meltwater. I do say developing, not designing, because I kind of stumbled backwards into all of this stuff we're talking about. What it's stuff I just dis- I discovered while making the game, which was originally mm-hmm. just a bit of a dry, silly math exercise with a little bit of post-futurist irony over it. But yeah, as I was working on this game of starvation, these were the concerns that came to me of you know the fact that in the modern world, starvation is never accidental. Mm-hmm. The armchair number that is a it's a massive simplification, but what isn't in geopolitics? The United Nations Food and Agricultural Organization in 2008 estimated it would require about 30 billion USD equivalent in currency to end world hunger, you know, including, you know, the infrastructure needed for distribution, all of those things. That's, you know, that's sort of the ballpark number. You can argue it up or down as to how much it would actually require, but, you know, 30 billion is a good argumentative point nice round number Mm -hmm. uh and you know comparatively the defense budget of the united states was almost 600 billion 20 times it is arguable and i believe very strongly arguable in fact i only say it's arguable because academics have taught me nothing if not couching yourself defensively to cover your (laughs) to cover your argument i believe it's absolutely certain that Issues of hunger and issues of resource distribution could easily be solved if there was a desire to. Mm-hmm. But starvation is a weapon. Starvation or the allocation of resources on a human life level is an instrument of political power. And that is the only reason why modern famines exist. So you've made a game directly about that do you feel so one one conversation that i've noticed happening a lot lately is are board games useful for modeling systems or feelings um what's your take on that and what 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 do you hope people might leave your game with so the systems feelings discussion is something that's been brought up a lot recently by game designer and the guy in charge of hollenspiele tom russell I say the guy in charge of. He and his wife, Mary Holland Russell, are the uh, heads of the company, co-heads. Tom Russell is a board game designer, and he's been very recently arguing a lot on Twitter that games cannot portray a cinematic lens, or rather do so poorly, and should instead focus on structural concepts. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't disagree with his points, but I disagree with his points. <laughs> so well, what Tom he, would know I do too. I talk to Tom a lot, but so so it, this is a safe place to disagree. Agree with Tom? Yes, yes. This is a safe place to disagree with the man who get, who signs my royalty checks. No, I kid, <laughs> I kid. Uh, but I feel like that's a an unnecessary distillation. I do understand what Tom is addressing. He's because a lot of attempts to create cinematics in to create you know 
feelings-based board games is to use the language of art forms like cinema or books or other directly narrative art forms in which you know flavor text or the the ever popular and ever mocked and reviled event deck where you just stick a bunch of things like oh you know cthulhu comes out of the portal and you lose two endurance that's conveys next to nothing uh it's trying to evoke a feeling but it evokes the sympathy of oh the rng spat out some some random numbers cool thanks great that don't really evoke you know the feelings so i do think that the ways a lot of board games currently try to evoke a sense of narrative feeling is not really the not really the way to go about it but at the same time there have been many gaming experiences that i do believe even in a multiplayer competitive context or cooperative context or whatever do convey powerful emotions that we see in things like the video game sphere uh mm-hmm. where so meltwater coming back to the things i have directly you know worked on meltwater was not developed initially as a systemic critique of you know the politics of starvation that yeah. came later it started as a collection of feelings that I wanted the player to feel again, Meltwater's I've talked about, you know, Romero and powers as, you know, the grandparents of Meltwater, but there is a third grandparent in some sort of bizarre genetic mishap, which is uh, Conway's game of life. And a lot of what Meltwater, a lot of where Meltwater started was just, I watched those videos on evolutions of uh, Conway's game of life and was struck or i looked at romero's images of the english cubes slowly pushing and crowding and displacing irish civilians in shihan lat and felt something and meltwater came from a desire to evoke a feeling to have a systemic object evoke an emotion to me Games are a form of sculpture. They are systems sculptures. And sculptures and, you know, sculptures can do a lot of different things and say a lot of different things, but I believe, you know, you have to grapple with the emotional dimension to really get them. Am I making any sense here? I feel like I'm rambling oh, off in a direction. No, I, and I don't I, think I, where I, you're going. And I don't think Tom disagrees with that, obviously. Uh, famously, right after Meltwater released, uh, Hollenspiel also released uh, what Tom considers his magnum opus, This Guilty Land, a uh, game about the um, about uh, the politics behind the abolition or continuation of slavery in the years leading up to the Civil War, the American Civil War, I should preface. And very much that game is about evoking a horror of compromise through system and meltwater is similarly using systems to evoke emotion but definitely my first starting point was what emotion do i want my players to feel and everything else evolved from there was getting them to that point where naturalistically without forcing them because no one likes their handheld you know one of the big critiques of games like meltwater and i 
think this is very valid. When I first, when Meltwater is first coming out, I felt like I had pulled a trick. I felt like I'd done something very, a little cheap. And by that, I mean what is commonly referred to as the um, spec ops, the line problem. And where you tell someone, you know, to do something monstrous and then you slap their hands and you say, look at that monstrous thing you did. How could you? What a monster. And it's, it's not, not effective. Like we joke about spec ops, spec ops, the line. I actually thought it was a really, you know, profound game, but it also had the problem of, you know, the argument that, oh, you know, you could have just turned off the game. Similar critiques are levied at, you know, we've talked about Brenda Romero recently. Her most prominent work, Train, uh, is highly criticized for a similar thing. It starts out with, you know, you come up to the thing, you operate these trains where you're delivering these yellow, they're taking these little yellow passengers and you're moving them to the end of the track. And then when you reach the end of the track, you turn over a card for the destination and oops, uh, it was an, it was a concentration camp. Those little yellow figures are Jews, your German collaborator, right. you know, and people like that's, that's stupid. That's a trick. And likewise, spec ops, the line, you know, it felt like that, oh, you know, things are being disguised from you. What's actually going on. But I guess the thing that I felt made Meltwater a little more justified, and this might just be self-defense and, you know, trying to, you know, be like, oh, I'm I'm innocent of the game design crimes. There's a there's a famous little flash game going around if you're in game design circles where, you know, you play some little Pac-Man little mini game and then two seconds in the game, it's like those pellets you were eating were people. You're a monster. And <laughs> you it's and the emotion it's supposed to disca- to evoke in you is going because that's stupid that's stupid it takes all weight out of what you're doing but i feel what makes meltwater if i can be so self-congratulatory is that i'm not hiding anything here i'm not telling you you know go and do this glorious thing the rule book's in front of you there is no part i am obscuring from you you if you buy meltwater you're not you're not doing the spec ops thing where you think you're buying you think you're just you know buying a modern military shooter perhaps or you're not doing the train thing where you approach this game and you're not sure what you're doing and there's some things that make you feel unsettled famously train is the first thing you do in a game of train is train is set on a pane of glass and the first thing the players are asked to do is shatter that glass which you know evokes these feelings of you know discomfort but you know because it's you know later you reflect on that's like oh that was a representation of kristallnacht but it but at the time that's not you know this ignorance you know critics of train have said that's not how the show went the german people were directly complicit no one was being duped Mm -hmm. and that's something i try to do in meltwater because the thing that i will defend train for is that first moment of shock where you turn over the card and it's like, oh, it was Bergen Belson and you're a monster is a lot of people are like, yeah, you know, that's a stupid way to end the game. And my defense of that is, but that doesn't end the game. The entire point of train is you get that initial shock and it's a little stupid. And I don't want to say stupid. That's an insult to that's insult to Mrs. Romero's work. And I don't Could want to do that. Perhaps it, artificial. It's it is artificial. But the game doesn't stop. You are asked to continue to use the Milgram experiment words. And we can have a whole sidebar about how the Milgram experiment was kind of a fake, but whatever you are asked to continue by the rules of the game. 
And the thing that struck me was then how players interact with that. No, once they know what the game is and what they're doing, do they walk away? Do they continue to play the game because that's what they're told to do? Uh, one of the interesting things is train, when you're playing, it has a take that mechanism. You draw cards that inhibit the movement of your of trains. You know, oh, I'm supposed to use this on my competitor's trains to slow them down. It's It's munchkin. But there were a few people who realized, oh, I can use these cards to slow down my own train because the trains move at a roll and move pace. And so they start, you know, people start engaging with the idea differently once they understand what they are being asked to grapple with. Once there's no longer Mm, a surprise, that's when it's, that's when it feels more compelling. And that is kind of what I'm trying to ask people to do with Meltwater is I'm not making a, I'm not hiding this. I'm not pulling a, I'm not trying to pull a Doki Doki literature club where I'm trying to pull the rug out from under you and it feels a little artificial. It's, it's all there. You'll, the, right. the game tells you right up front what it is. That's the reason why the tagline on, the, why the tagline is on the box because it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a on the nose tagline and that's the point. I don't want anyone going into this not knowing what they are getting themselves into. This is a game of starvation. You are willingly, you are choosing to buy this and experience it as it is. I'm not tricking you. I'm glad you brought up Spec Ops the line. I was actually going to ask you about it. Spec Ops is an interesting one because the only reason I purchased it was because I had heard it was subversive. Um, I generally don't like military shooters. I could not care less about Call of Duty. So I bought Spec Ops the line specifically because I had heard it was doing that thing. And even though I liked portions of it, I still came away feeling like that one twist um, where you fire white phosphorus into a crowd of civilians. Which um, is a choice you can't not make, even knowing about it beforehand, the mechanics of the game force it to happen. That even if you're trying to avoid using the white phosphorus, you will use the white phosphorus on the civilians. No matter what, there is no choice. The choice is slapped out of your hands. Right. And that's the artificiality that frustrated me is I died maybe 10 times trying to get around that decision to use that horrific weapon on military enemies. And that's even before you know that there are civilians there. Yeah, it's like Um, it turns out that those those military enemies are, in fact, you know, human. Well, they're they're code in the shape of humans, but you get the point. But, right. Well, and they're they're helping the civilians. Um, now, now there's a there's a decision later in Spec Ops: The Line that I think works a lot better um, with a threatening mob approaching you, and they start screaming insults. They've killed one of your companions, and they start throwing rocks. And do you d- default to shooting at the threat the way that video games do? But you can also shoot in the air to disperse the crowd. Um, that worked a lot better for me just because I actually had a choice. And in um, fact, what the game was trying to illustrate was the ways in which your choices are falsely constrained, not by the engine of the game. Because like you said, if you shoot in the air or shoot at the ground, the crowd will disperse. But the game wanted to see how many people would think of that, especially in the moment. And that right. is a much more... Similarly, the uh, scene where you are asked to, uh, you know, play the game of a sick, you know... What's the guy from Heart of Darkness again? Kurtz. Kurtz, yeah. So when you're asked to play the Kurtz figures, 
you know, sick game with the hanged men and you're supposed to choose which one to save, you know, there are other options. You can shoot this, you can attack the snipers. You can do, you can try and shoot the ropes to protect them. You can do all these other things outside of the choice. The game is explicitly telling you. Right. I mean, to me, that was much, a much more interesting uh, deconstruction because it's talking about the ludic language that we have been trained to use in a military game. We shoot people. So it was much less artificial. To me, that's one of the things that I think works so well about Meltwater. Um, I do feel like it's a cheat to say you don't have to play the game, um, especially when the whole reason I'm playing the game is to directly engage in the ways that the game is subversive. And the game and the game does have that. Like, I will totally admit there is a paragraph at the end of the Meltwater rulebook where I'm like, you could just, you know, declare peace on the first. I know no one's going to do that. That's not why you're not going to pay $40 unless you're really insufferably smug to do right. that. Uh, so I, I know that's a cheat. You know, that's a cheat. We both know that's a cheat. You're not going to do it. But that choice well, I don't take that choice away from you for the next hour either. So for me, just speaking in the emotions that you wanted to evoke, and I would love to hear what you wanted to evoke. But for me, so I mentioned already that sort of carnal delight that I had uh, at a few points while playing. But also near the end of the game, we finally just declared it over because it was so apparent my opponent was going to starve. And the result for me was a, was a sense of emptiness. That the thing I had done was not righteous, that I had just wiped out another, uh, you know, 70% of humanity for the sake of nothing really um, there in the long, cold night. What, what were you hoping that your players would take away from that experience? The thing I, I mean, obviously, you know, I wanted to have that same sort of impact that Shia Khan Lat uh, had on me, where you look at this displacement and you feel. A monstrosity, but I wanted them to be complicit in that monstrosity, unlike in Shihan Lat, where, you know, you're you're not the you know, you're not the English, you're not the one doing the displacement. In this game you are. And I wanted them to just look at that and see that image of Antarctica and what has been done to it, and just, you know, feel that on a very empathetic level. But another big part was my decision to uh make it a concession game, which is something that uh, you brought up in your article. And I was, you know, kind of over the moon that you devoted so much page space to this thing that I really cared about, which is meltwater usually does not end with a formal victory condition. The stated victory condition of meltwater is to eliminate your opponent to the last man. That is how you formally win Meltwater. But most games of Meltwater end when one player throws in the towel and says, yeah. okay, you win. My people are now, my, my citizens are now yours. This is over. And this is something that comes heavily from my history with games like Magic the Gathering. I played Magic for a lot of years. Right. Uh, CCGs, uh, specifically Magic, has this has a long tradition of concession being okay. It's fine. It's fine if you concede. It's fine if you quit the field. Mostly because that is magic is a game where sometimes you are just, you know, you're beating up a goldfish. Right, at, you're just you're circling the drain. You're circling the drain. Your opponent drew no lands, and, you know, both of you know it's over. There's no reason to, there's no reason to draw this out anymore. Similarly, uh, a little-known game, and for once it's actually a rather little-known game, 
called Septicon Uranium Wars came out in 2014, I want to say. I still have a copy. It's not a very well-received game, but it's a game about um, two asteroids shooting at each other and trying to destroy each other's production facilities. And the end condition of the game is essentially make your opponent unable to continue without like a really stated end goal. And I those struck me specifically because, you know, they have a very abstracted end goal and I turned around and I was playing with that. You know, you mentioned in your article that, you know, I could have very easily put in a rule like when you're popular, when you have 10 more population than your opponent, you win. Hooray. But right. <laughs> I tried that very briefly, like didn't make it through an entire game because it felt wrong. That's not how emotively how this experience works. There's no there is no point at which you tick over one final tally and everyone throws up their hands. It is a decision that has to be made and it's a hard decision to make because, you know, how when do you make that decision? When do you decide to throw in the towel? And Meltwater especially, it's a two-player game. It's a deterministic game. It's there is a little bit of RNG, but you have turns upon you have, you know, a lot of turns to see how the RNG is shaking out. Nothing surprises you. So if you are going to concede, it's your own fault. It is your decision. You are choosing to admit that you lost. And that's a hard thing for players to grapple with. And I wanted them to feel that impulse towards actions that in retrospect would seem horrible and monstrous. The thing that I really wanted to express with Meltwater is something that Jason Matthews and Ananda Gupta wanted to express in Twilight Struggle, which is, uh, and I'm going to quote from their essay in the uh, Twilight Struggle rulebook, Important for players to understand that the game has a very definite point of view. Twilight Struggle basically accepts all of the internal logic of the Cold War as true, even those parts of it that are demonstrably false. The domino theory, for instance. The domino theory, for instance, which a lot of historians think is, well, most historians think is complete hogwash, but it was the perspective of the people you are embodying. You are embodying the superpowers, the superpowers believe domino theory, so the game takes that as its given so that you will act in that manner. The Meltwater concession rules are in there for a similar reason, because... Looking back, if you were an actual military commander in this situation or any situation where you are wasting lives, the armchair historian after the fact is going to say, why did you do that? That was ridiculous. You were, it was obviously a foolhardy idea. Why did you do it? That's stupid. You know, why did Pickett charge up the hill and get himself completely annihilated? Because you're not in that position. You're not sitting there having to make the call, desperately knowing that you've lost and it's your fault and having to accept that. I loved that the game made you cry uncle, despite every learned instinct telling you to fight till the the absolute last. And it's interesting that that's also an instinct of most board games. Um, So I, I played a lot of chess, which much like also the collectible card game scene, uh, it's completely appropriate to say that you have lost. But when it comes to board games, I, I have seen so many people asking if it is poor sportsmanship to surrender. Exactly, um, exactly. And that's 
And honestly, I'm kind of using that. I'm kind of right. using and abusing that to make my game work. Right. You know? It's ingrained on two levels, both uh, our play level and our national level. Um, that you met, you must not surrender to surrender is to fail. It is not only to end this torment. Yeah. And that is a big part of what I wanted Meltwater to do. And it's a bit, it's a bit odd that you, you mentioned chess. Cause I was actually going to mention that the, uh, the way Meltwater uses fight to the last man is the same way I use when I'm trying to explain chess to someone <laughs> who has never played chess. And what I will tell them when I sit down is, your goal is to capture the enemy king. And a million hands just went up in your audience right now, I imagine, going, but that's not what you do. You put your opponent in check where their king cannot move without being captured, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, yeah, I get it. Because the king can't actually be captured. But to get the point across, I'm going to say, you're trying to capture the enemy king, because that conveys it so much easier. In Meltwater, kill them to the last man is the logic. The same way capture the king is the logic of chess, but you don't actually have to get there. And yeah, so that was actually an inspiration was the way I teach chess is also what Meltwater is. If that makes any sense and I didn't just go down a blind alley for like five <laughs> minutes. No, absolutely not. Is there anything else you'd like to tell us about Meltwater? Maybe plug your game for us a bit? <laughs> well... Uh, Meltwater is available at um, hollandspiele.com. Hollandspiele does pretty much all of their sales through direct order through their website. Uh, that's uh, H-O-L-L-A-N-D-S-P-I-E-L-E. It sounds like a German name there in Michigan. Uh, <laughs> but uh, if you're in the U.S., you can order f- directly from them. Uh, the game is $40 right now. Uh, if you're in the UK, you can order through Second Chance Games. Uh, if you go to hollandspiele.com, they'll have a link. Uh, and unfortunately, other international orders right now are being suspended due to the pandemic. But uh, all of Hollandspiele's games, including Meltwater, are also available for print and play at, I believe, wargamevault.com. And uh, you can go there, pay $10. We don't make as much money off of it. But, you know, if you want to play the game, I want to put the game in front of you. Please play the game. Every time you play the game, I get a little money. And, you know, I'm going to spend that on, you know, tattoos and video games. Well, thank you so much for talking with me today, Aaron. Well, thank you so much. And uh, if if your listeners want to make a terrific mistake with their lives, uh, you can find me at at GutterOwl on Twitter, though... You know, on second thought, maybe your your poor innocent viewers don't uh, want to do that because many board game fans have made the mistake of following me on Twitter, and oh my god, that poor legion—the poor legion of heterosexual dads <laughs> who have had who have made the mistake of encountering my terrible fiesta of queer shit posts and degeneracy. But I do well, promise for- that I do promise that all of my followers will be inducted into my transgender riot girl death cult by 2020 at the latest. As a former heterosexual dad, I can confirm. Chemical bomb, chemical bomb. Eyes melt, skin explodes, everybody dead. It won't be long, it won't be long. People gonna run around losing their heads. A river of blood, who's gonna live? The earth is tired of humankind, and I think this world is gonna wash out.
my singing voice is terrible. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>